Good morning. <laughs> Good to see you guys. Um, one thing I want to uh, mention to you before we jump into the message, before we dive right in, uh, that I want to announce that we're having the Salt Rock Women's Retreat. That's going to be March 29th and 30th, and that's going to be at Lakeview Retreat Center in Waxahachie. Uh, the cost for that is $100, uh, so that provides... Um, food, board, supplies, anything that you're going to need besides just traveling up there and taking your, your overnight stuff to stay there. And it's going to be a wonderful time. So I encourage all ladies to go. Uh, this is going to be the last Sunday before registration closes. So I'd also encourage you ladies to register for that if you plan on going. Okay. So please, please, please don't forget about that before registration closes. Uh, now today, uh, Someone asked me, what are you preaching on? And I said, Jesus, and they just rolled their eyes because it's a Sunday school answer, you know. Uh, but we are talking about Christ, and we're going to be talking about Christ and his supremacy in Colossians 1, verses 13 through 20. Uh, so I'd like us to have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into God's word and see what we can learn more about our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, God, we're here because we believe uh, that you are almighty God, uh, that your love for us is never ending, and that because of that, you sent your son to be the perfect sacrifice and redeemer of our sins. Uh, Father, I pray that as we look into your word this morning, that we get um, a revived appreciation for who Christ is, and that we uh, are less prone to make him a habit or ritual. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now, as we grow as human beings, there are certain stages in life that you're going to go through, and we all kind of hit these little milestones as we're growing and developing. Have uh, you noticed some little kids just have no fear? The dad will throw them up 12 foot in the air. Mom will go, <gasps> but the kid just laughs, you know. And then you do that for a while, and then all of a sudden, it's like the, the fear switch comes on, and they're scared to do things that they would do before. Uh, natural development. Then you get the terrible twos where they challenge the authority of everything and everyone and they just try to test the limits and sometimes 16 is just the terrible twos times eight and throwing a set of car keys, right? Uh, so we have the terrible twos, but then we go to that, one of my personal favorites, that teenage adults know nothing stage. You know that one? Okay. Uh, that's where they just ignore all the wisdom of the adults in the room, all the life experience, every mistake you've made. And they say, I'm going to teach my kids to not do this. And they're going to do it anyway, because they haven't gotten to the point on the other side of that where, you know, mom and dad actually knew a thing or two, Right. Well, we have those parts in our lives where we uh, need to get to that point where we see the wisdom and insight of others. And in our spiritual journey, it's pretty similar. Uh, we can go through these stages in our walk with Christ. And if we lose sight of our relationship of Christ and who he is, uh, we're going to have a, a, a shallow understanding of the depth of Christ and what it means that he's not just our savior, but everything else that he means to us. And in Colossians 1, Paul gives a deep description of the supremacy or the greatness of Jesus Christ. Uh, so I'm going to do things a little different from what I normally do. Usually I just read a passage of scripture and I go through it verse by verse. We're going to start at the front of the uh, verses 13 through 20, uh, verses 13 and 14, and we're going to look at verses 19 and 20 because they prove uh, a very important point. So you look at verse 13, uh, it says, he, meaning God the Father, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness 
of sins. Uh, then in verse 19, it says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, Christ was not rescuing us from God the Father. God the Father had a plan. You see, early in, early in my faith, I, I understood uh, God to be the, the angry one. God was the one who was angry with sin. He was the one who was angry with us for struggling with sin. And Jesus was the one that was stepping in the middle and saying, no, God, don't obliterate them. Don't annihilate them. I will go and I will bear their sins on the cross and I'll rescue them for that. And he convinces God the Father and God the Father says, okay. But that's not what scripture teaches us about, uh, about God. God isn't this this angry God. He is this loving God. It says that God, our our Father, in his love sent Jesus to die on the cross and redeem us from our sins. It was God the Father's plan. It was God the Father's idea to send the Son. Christ was the plan of redemption from God the Father. So if you've got this idea of God being that, the angry kid with the magnifying glass and we're the ants getting our antennas burned off, that's, a, that's not a good representation of who God is. He's a loving God and has offered to rescue us from sin and death through his son. And see, the passage says that it was God who transferred us from darkness to forgiveness, from being lost to being saved. And that verse 13, it uses this word delivered, okay? Now I'm a Greek geek, and so if if I Greek you to death today, I apologize for that in advance, but that Greek word implies that this was done without hindrance, okay? God didn't have to break a sweat to save and redeem us. His plan was to send his son, and there was no doubt in God's mind that this was going to happen. This was almighty God at work. This wasn't like uh, men fighting in a war, and if this strategy would have been done in this battle, or this tactic would have been employed in another uh, another battle, that the result would have been totally different. No, God, losing was not an option for him. Part of his plan for redeeming us was never close to failing. We see in verses 19 and 20 that it pleased God for redemption to come through his son, Jesus. He didn't say, I can't think of anything better to redeem the world, so I'm gonna send Jesus. He said, no, I'm pleased to send my son to do this. He said, it's pleased to dwell. God was pleased to have the gospel, redemption, his saving power dwell in his son. And that word means to permanently dwell in his son. So it's not like Jesus borrowed redemption power to save us. No, he has that power of redemption for all time. And if we stopped right there, I think it would be safe to say that's where most of us would land if if someone would ask us, who is Jesus? He's our savior, our our redeemer. God uh, loved us and and, and wanted to rescue us from our sins, so he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us so we could be saved. And that's where we'd land. But in Colossians, we see so much more of who Christ is. And what my hope is, is we look at the depth of that and we appreciate who Christ is and what he did for us even more. Look at verse 15. It says, he is the image of, of the invisible God, the firstborn 
of all creation. Now we'll get to that phrase firstborn of all creation later on, but let's focus on he is the visible image of the invisible God. See that word image in the Greek has a deep meaning. It doesn't mean just image or copy. It means exact likeness. And in Greek tradition, when they use this word, it didn't just mean, oh, it kind of looks like what it represents. It has some of the essence of what it represents. So when it says Jesus was God in the flesh, it doesn't mean like, oh, if you look at Jesus, you get an idea of who God is. No, you're looking at God. That is God. It means Christ is the perfect likeness and manifestation of God. He's not similar. He's exactly like God the Father. So just let that sink in for a minute. Christ is the perfect likeness of God. And John 14, Jesus put it this way. Uh, he was telling his disciples that if they, if they knew him, they would know God the Father. And Philip, one of the disciples, he speaks up and he says, Jesus, Lord, show us God the Father and it will be enough for us. In other words, if you'll just let us see God the Father with the naked eye, we will know that we know that we know that you are the Son of God. We will never doubt a word you ever say ever again. Uh, our confidence in you will never be shaken. If you would just show us with the human eye, God the Father, just show us to him. And this is in the midst of, in two times in the New Testament, they've heard God the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Well, listen to what Jesus says in verse nine to Philip. He says, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, God's plan, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So we have to get our theology right about Christ if we wanna get our theology right about who God the Father is because he's the representative of God the Father. So if we minimize who Jesus is, in turn we're gonna minimize who God the Father is because Jesus was more than just a radical leader. He, was so, he wasn't just somebody who was challenging social norms. He wasn't a community organizer. He wasn't a politician. He wasn't an advocate for social justice. He was way more than that. He was God with us in the flesh, living among us and coming to redeem us. So my question this morning, and it's a hard question for us to look at and examine in ourselves, is do we trust in a savior that we know next to nothing about? I was once teaching uh, about our intimacy with Christ and our walk, and as we spend more time with him, the more we get to know him. And I was trying to use an illustration with marriage, so I'm teaching this group of adults on a Wednesday night Bible study, and uh, one of the adults volunteered to be the guinea pig for me, and he'd been married for at least 20 years, has children with his wife, figured he knew his relationship with his wife really well. So the key word here is I tried to do this illustration to be successful. Uh, so I asked him, uh, tell me, your wife's favorite color. I don't know. So I said, okay. I try to adjust from that and say, tell me your wife's favorite hobby. I don't know. What's her favorite song? I don't know. And at this point, his wife doesn't have a really nice look on her face. So I'm trying to help the guy. I keep giving him more questions. And the more questions I'm giving him, the 
deeper the hole is getting for him. What's her favorite restaurant? I don't know. Her favorite book? I don't know. Uh, where does she like to go shop? I don't know. And come to find out, this guy had been married for someone for 20 years and barely knew her. And, and that, just in and of itself, broke my heart. But if we follow and listen to Christ, if we're not listening to him and studying the word and having daily communion with him, someone can say, who is Jesus? And you may say, I know he rescued me from my sins, but other than that, I don't know. When there's so much more to Christ, not to minimize him dying for us on the cross, but getting a better understanding of who died for us on the cross. Look at verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Christ is the creator and the sustainer. Uh, Christ was present in creation. If you look at John chapter one, verses one through three, it tells us in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus was present during creation. And as the universe is being put together, Jesus is right there with God the Father. <clears throat> now we see that unity in there. If you look in the Greek again, me being the Greek nerd, the way they teach you to interpret Greek is you can find what the subject is based on the word ending of the noun. So that word for God, theos, is the singular subject. The word logos for Christ is the singular subject. Now I don't know where you went to school, but in Greek, that's bad grammar have two singular subjects it can only be one singular subject but it's good theology because Christ and God the Father are one Genesis puts it this way in one verse it says God said come let us make man in our image and then the very verse after that it says so God made man in his singular image showing that Christ was present during creation and he was active in creation Jesus wasn't the kiddo with the sidewalk chalk drawing on the concrete while God the Father's organizing the garage. He's there creating. He is the creator. Colossians 1.16 tells us that everything was created by him and for him. We are here because of Christ and we are here for Christ. And if we misunderstand that relationship, we start to think that Christ is here for us, and it's the other way around. Now, verse 17, I don't know about you, but it blows my mind. Verse 17 says, everything is held together by his power. By him, all things are held together. That word just means glue or cohesion. The reason creation doesn't fling apart is because Christ in his awesome power holds it and sustains it together. Every day we have, Every year that comes around is because of the power of Christ as creator and sustainer. Think of it this way. Uh, scientists have discovered uh, this thing called the science of fine-tuning, okay? Picture there's all these dials 
that have to be just right on a certain setting for earth to sustain life. There's about 200 of them, okay? Uh, now, some of them off the top of my head is oxygen levels. If the oxygen level is too, too dense or too thin, we can't live here. Uh, if gravity is uh, too heavy on us or too light on us, we can't live here. Uh, the earth's axis, if, if, if it's a degree off one way or the other, we can't live here anymore. We can't be sustained. What holds all that together? Well, scripture says Christ holds everything together. We're not sustainers. We're just used by the sustainer. And if we forget that he's our sustainer, then we forget that he's a sustainer. Who do we usually, usually look to to fill in the gap? Ourselves. And we start to think, you know what? God needs us. We need to step up because we don't have anything to sustain us. And we could believe that we must do good deeds in order to, to earn salvation or we need to win these spiritual battles because God needs us to. Christ doesn't need us. It's the other way around. We need Christ. He's fully capable of doing whatever he wants. And if he chooses to work through us, even when he does that, and whatever he does is successful, it's because of what he did through us, not our wisdom, our strength, our education, our background. It's all Christ. Now, verse 18 tells us more about Christ. It says, and he is the head of the church, or head of the body, the church. And he's the beginning of the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So we've seen in the past couple of series uh, that Jesus is head of the church, that Jesus uh, was founded, founded the church. We saw that in the church series, uh, the one that we did before the, the sent series, um, that he said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then last week in, in uh, Acts chapter nine, Jason talked about using Paul, Saul who was converted to Paul as a very unlikely leader and God used him in a marvelous way. But when he called Saul, who later became Paul, he noticed he didn't say, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because Christ was head of the church. He was the one in charge, and he still is. Now, in the church and in our individual lives, Christ should rule. Everything that we do as church leaders here at Solid Rock is based on what we believe Christ is leading and commanding us to do as his church. So if we're gonna look at a paradigm chart and we're gonna say, okay, where, do, where does the buck stop? Where's the, where's the senior leadership? Uh, it doesn't stop with the elder board. It goes a notch higher to Christ, who is king and Lord of all, especially the church. Now, if you were to go on our website, uh, srchurch.tv, and you were to look at about us and click that about us tab under there, it says statement of faith. If you were to open that up, this is what it says in our statement of faith about the church. It says, we believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. The church is united into the body of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. The church prevails in its mission to make disciples of the nations under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The universal church is manifested in local churches whose membership is composed only of those who have placed their faith in Jesus. 
So now I have another big question to ask you. First question was, do you believe in a savior that you barely know? Now the second question is, is that savior your mascot or is he your monarch? It's a very good book. I recommend just about anyone read before, uh, before they go on to heaven. Put this on your bucket list. It's a book called Christ is All by David Bryant. And he explains that sometimes we lose sight of who Jesus is because we get comfortable in his presence. We can get comfortable because we go through routines and rituals and then Christ becomes part of that and then we don't see him for the true depth and value of who he is. So Jesus is our monarch, our ruler, our king, but he can tend to become a mascot. Now, a mascot is someone who puts on a costume during a football game and rallies the crowd in, and in hopes of rallying the crowd to rally the team to win the game. They're part of the game, but they're not the focal point of the attention. I think the Dallas Cowboys have one called Rowdy. That's the mascot, right? Uh, now, show of hands if you would purchase tickets to watch a Cowboy game or, or a different football game. Okay, there's some football fans in here. Now, how many of you would go just to see the mascot? No one raises their hands? I'm not surprised. Because the mascot is good, it's entertaining, it may stir up some emotion, but you didn't go there for the mascot. You went there to see the game, right? So there's a difference between a monarch and a mascot. And this is what David Bryant says, and, and he puts it in such good detail. He says, in so many of our churches, I fear Jesus is regularly deployed as our mascot. Once a week on Sunday, for example, we trot him out to cheer us up, give us new vigor and vision to reassure us that we are somebodies. We invite him to reinforce us of the great things that we want to do for God. We look to him to reinvigorate our celebration of victories. We think we're destined to win. He lifts our spirits. He resuscitates our souls. He rebuilds our confidence. He gives us reason to cheer. He confirms us over and over that all must be well. We're so proud of him, and we're proud to be identified by his name. Enthusiasm for him energizes us for a while, but then for the rest of the week, he's pretty much regulated to the sidelines. For all practical purposes, we're the ones who call the shots. Now, if Jesus is who he deserves to be in our lives and in the church, he gets the final say-so over everything. In fact, in Colossians 3.11, the, the scripture says, Christ is everything. Every day we must choose to see him for who he is or risk getting so comfortable being in his presence that we start to devalue our view of him. Now in verse uh, 18, the latter half of verse 18, it uses this term being firstborn from the dead. A few verses ahead of that, we saw this phrase, firstborn of creation. Now, if we look at that in a literal sense, it's going to imply that Christ is a creation and he was the firstborn, the created of creation, and the firstborn of the dead. So what, what do these phrases mean? These phrases don't mean that he's a creation. See, on the cross, Jesus conquered sin and death, and then he paid this new way for us, this possibility of redemption through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So he's that one who paved the way for us to go to heaven, and verse 20 explains that through Jesus, peace was made through, uh, between us and God through 
the blood of the cross. It simply means he's our redeemer. And if you look at the depth of the other verses, our creator is the one who died for us. Our sustainer was the, the one holding everything together, was the one who died for us. Our king was the one who died for us, the head of the church. That is who shed his blood on the cross. And these verses give us more depth on who Christ is and hopefully keeps us from turning him into a habit or a ritual. Now these verses they just scratch the surface. John, in the final gospel, he said, you know, if I were to write down everything that Jesus did in his human life on this earth, I suppose the world couldn't hold all the books to record everything that he did. But then this is a God who has always existed. If we were to record everything he's done and every reason to praise him, the universe probably couldn't contain the, all the facts and the reasons that we should praise, adore, revere, and obey Christ. As we kind of wrap things to a close and we get the, the band ready to come up to, to sing, I, I do have a confession that uh, I, I'm even guilty of doing this in human relationships. Um, I can take people for granted in my life, especially people who I see every day uh, taking for granted how, how wonderful my kids are and especially how wonderful my wife is, how God has blessed me with a wife who's loving and patient and puts a, up uh, with a lot from me. Uh, sometimes we have five kids, but she'll say she has six because she has me, okay? But in, in the midst of that, if I could lose sight of what makes her such a blessing in my life, I have to really be careful that I don't lose sight of what makes Christ such a center focal point of my life as well. I have to continually see him as the one who's creator, sustainer, king, and redeemer. Now, as we get ready to sing, I just want to urge you, whatever God is calling you to do in, in seeing this, maybe you've, maybe you've been guilty of making him your, your mascot instead of your monarch, your king, your leader. Maybe you haven't really seen him in, in the full light of who he is, and you want to approach him with more uh, appreciation and more obedience and more excitement. And if God's calling you to do that, we are going to have prayer partners standing by uh, at the front and at the back to pray with you if you'd like someone to pray with you. Uh, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so blessed to have a God who loves us so much to not only uh, give us a plan of redemption, but to send us Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, to dwell among us, uh, creator, sustainer, king, head of the church. And Father, I pray that we never turn him into a habit or a ritual, but we see him for the depth of who he is. In Jesus' name, amen.